Today on the Altco's Mainstream Podcast, we're traveling to one of the most exciting regions in the startup world, Latin America, which has seen venture-backed funding dollars of $14.8 billion flowing into the region in 2021 come in higher than the prior six years combined. Brian Rickwarth comes onto the podcast to talk about building the company that he wishes he had when he was an entrepreneur in Latin America. He's the co-founder of Latitude, the A16Z and NFX-backed infrastructure play and accelerator for startups in Latin America. With Latitude, he's building the operating system for venture-backed companies in the region. When he sold Brazilian online real estate marketplace Viva Real for $550 million several years ago, he had to pay over $100 million in capital gains tax due to incorporation errors made early on. It was quite the expensive mistake and one that he hopes to fix with Latitude for the next generation of founders. Brian's a serial entrepreneur who also worked with Zappi Moves, which was owned by Grupo Globo, Latin America's largest media company. As an angel investor, Brian's invested in over 140 tech startups in Latin America, so he's quite familiar with the inner workings of starting a company in the region and everything that it takes to do so. We had a fascinating conversation about why Latin America is such an exciting region to invest into right now, how community is the new lean startup and the equivalent of Stanford of the internet, and how the confluence of talent, capital, size of the market, and opportunity make LATAM a region of focus for VCs, and why Latitude will play a critical role in developing the startup ecosystem in Latin America. Thanks so much, Brian, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast and helping us learn more about such an exciting region in the startup world. We're going mainstream. Brian, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Hey, thanks, man. It's a huge uh, pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you. No, it's, it's an honor to have you on and talking about a number of really important topics in a region that you've spent a ton of time in Latin America, everything from building businesses in the region to building key financial infrastructure for startup investment into the region to how you're building latitude, ton of stuff to get into. First, I'd love to rewind the tape and go to your background, which is how you got to Latitude is seemingly a compilation of your prior experiences. You've been a founder, successful exits, invested in, I think, over 80 companies at this point. So walk us through what you've done, how you got here. Sure. Usually the first question is, how did a gringo end up in Latin America? In my case, I got in my car, drove from California to Costa Rica, bought a one-way ticket to Bogota, Colombia. Sometimes there's a woman behind these stories. So my wife likes to say that she imported me to Colombia. We met in San Diego, and then I ended up going to Colombia with plans to spend a few months. A few months turned into six and a half years of living in Bogota, Colombia. Did a handful of entrepreneurial things, mainly to pay the bills. The projects consequentially got larger as time went on. And I came across a case study from Mercado Libre, a GSB case study, and thought, why is nobody building the Mercado Libre of real estate? Then I ended up bootstrapping a company that wanted to solve that problem after having had a terrible experience finding a property myself. And we were off to the races, not with a, a quick start because there was literally no venture ecosystem. 
So it wasn't something that was easy to find. And the investors that were investing were more like high net worth individuals that wanted to buy 50% of your company for $100,000. So just the you know sign of an immature ecosystem. Things have obviously changed today. Fast forward, we ended up finally raising from some great institutional investors by way of Kazek and Monashis, who co-led the Series A round. Uh, and then we ended up scaling up, raising a fair amount of capital, building a pretty large business, kind of the Zillow of Brazil. We exited in the second largest tech transaction of 2020 to a joint venture out of South Africa and Norway, Naspers and, and basically OLX is the, was the acquire. And so that kind of brought me to present day. I had a little bit of time to assess and think about what I want to do next. And during that, you know, wait time of the antitrust review is a dangerous time for an entrepreneur because you have no control over the situation. And I basically put out to my network, I said, hey, if you're an early stage founder and you want some advice or some help on your journey, uh, let me know. And I ended up taking 150 Zoom calls during the summer of 2020 and, and basically felt I was lucky to have some incredible people that helped me along the way, wanted to give back. So started helping founders that evolved into a cohort-based system. Gina Gotthilf, who was the head of growth at Duolingo, and then Yuri Danilchenko, my other co-founder, the three of us started putting our heads together, thinking of how we could scale information and kind of decoupling capital from advice and network. We started hosting these live sessions that evolved into Latitude, which is essentially a community and infrastructure for the startup ecosystem in Latin America, where we help elevate the next generation of, of founders in the region. I want to dig into Latitude, but before we do that, you said something really interesting as you went through your background, which is that when you started your business, there was very little venture infrastructure. The market was immature. What are some of the things that you saw then and have seen evolve over time that has brought us to the point of both Latitude and also the growth of the LATAM startup ecosystem at large. You know, I like to joke that my vintage of founders during that time period, you can break it on two sides, the, the founder supply and the capital supply. The founder supply was pretty limited. There wasn't a huge number of entrepreneurs going after ambitious ideas. It's the question of what comes first. I remember for me, Buscape was the first large transaction I think they sold it for like 350 million or something, maybe more. And that paved the way. And all the investors I'd been begging for money for two years, finally were like, ah, maybe let's just throw a little bit of money in and see what happens. So that clicked and I was able to raise some angel investor capital to get me going. But I'd say the primary thing is that the number, the sheer volume of founders that have had repetitions now, there's just reps that are there. You can refer to either being part of an early stage company that's scaled a new bank, a Rappi, a Mercado Libre, fill in the blank. There's many companies to, to point to now. Viva so Real. <laughs> Viva Real, another one. You know, I'm lucky to have people on my executive team. Lucas Vargas started a company called Nomad. Now they're growing like crazy. It's banking for the mass affluent in Latin America, US banking. So there's a handful of things that have happened now. And I think that the capital has caught up too. And maybe to add founder mentality a little bit too, I remember going to China in 2000, I want to say 2016, 2017. And I came back to Brazil at the time and I was like, wow, we're thinking small. There was all these entrepreneurs had really big visions and they were trying to build you know, enormous companies. And I think that the mindset has shifted over the last couple of years. The size of the ambition has gotten bigger 
and that manifested into bigger companies. What what made that leap in founders' minds? Was it that there's such a big opportunity to build these big businesses in these markets that have so much greenfield, or was it the the acknowledgement that more capital would come in and there was belief that VCs would fund these ideas? I think every entrepreneur builds on the shoulder of, of giants. If you think about my journey, I'm sitting in an internet cafe in 2007 or something, and I find this GSB case study and I'm reading about Marcos Galperin and, and Mercado Libre, and I'm like, oh, like I can make the connection of this is a big business, but something that I could do and get inspiration from. I think it, it gives permission. You look at some of these founders, like David Velas, a guy just like, I'm going to take on a bank and everyone's like, that's crazy. And then you do it and then it's not crazy anymore. Also, I got to highlight Marcelo Claraway when he came to with SoftBank and they were like, we're going to put this amount of capital into the region. It elevated people's thought process. Giorgi Paolo from Brazil, one of the old school entrepreneurs and investors, used to say that it costs the same to dream big and dream small. So you might as well dream big. And I think that that has given people permission to think bigger. On that point, I think you're bringing up something really interesting when it comes to the, the region, because there's often a, a very kind of simple way of looking at it. Like you can build the X for Y. So you can build the Flexport for Latin America, the Uber or DoorDash for Latin America. And, and to some extent that is true, but then there are A, so many nuances that make it different, that founder in the region has to be able to do this and build it. And then B, you can actually build bigger businesses. New Bank is the biggest digital bank in the world. It's bigger than digital banks in more developed markets. What are some of the things about the region itself that make building regionally focused businesses so important and give them the potential to be such massive enterprises? Listen, this is a gigantic canyon of opportunity and you can go deep and wide. Obviously, you need to think about your go-to-market strategy on whether you're going to go wide geographically, wide kind of product set, or you're going to go deeper on the product and solve really specific problems. But the, the bottom line is that if I were to summarize, when you're working in a market that doesn't have the infrastructure that allow you to build defensibility for your business, I'd say that's the headline. Look at a company like Kavak that started doing cars, but then they're doing financing and then they're doing all these other things associated with the vertical. Whereas if you're in Australia, like there's a bunch of other companies, I'm just using Australia as an example. The US is even obviously more, more of a developed market, but even a market like Australia, you've got venture backed companies solving really specific problems. And so you don't have the same ability to be full stack as Chris Dixon would say. On that point, do you think that the foundation has been built where companies can now build more faster? Because now you have startups that are serving other startups. We're actually both investors in one of those companies, Contisimplace, which is in many respects serving startups with its corporate charge card. But there has to be a period of time where those businesses either get built or the infrastructure is there for that to happen, or the companies themselves need to actually take more time to build those ancillary or other products in order to capture the market. Do you think we've reached that point in time where we've hit that saturation point where LATAM? Because there was a lot of lead time. It's very early. You can reference the incredible amount of capital that's gone in. And with this massive influx of capital being poured into Latin America, it's still relatively small in the grand scheme of things. I mean, 
twice as large as India, half the capital going in than India, just for, for reference. But the infrastructure piece, it is just fraught with all kinds of friction points. No way at a saturation point. It's literally the second minute of the game. Like there, there's 90 minutes on the pitch. There, we're, we're in minute two and there's a lot of game to be played. And there's a lot of foundational things that need to be built. There's companies like Pomelo building banking as a service. One of the reasons why I'm so excited about Latitude is that it, 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 if you want to build a venture-backed company in Latin America, today it costs about $30,000 to build the right structure in order to receive venture capital. And I learned this the hard way because we paid it as a company over $100 million in capital gains taxes unnecessarily because we had the wrong corporate structure. Um, I can get into that in, in a little bit if you want. But just automating the idea of creating a company where instead of taking eight weeks, instead of paying $30,000... If you can just fast track that and then you can increase the number of companies that are being built because you lower the friction. There's so many things like that and a number of things that need to be solved. And so I'm, I'm very bullish on anything that results in, in increasing the infrastructure so that it enables the next generation of startups to be built. And there's just so many things that need to happen. Let's get into the infrastructure problem and what you're trying to solve. So first, let's start with Latitude. We'd love for people to understand what you're building at Latitude because the infrastructure is one piece of this. And at least from the outside looking in, it looks like you came to that realization from A, your experience building VRL, but B, spending the past two years building both community and investing into countless number of startups at Latitude. Walk us through what Latitude does and what was the gap in the market that you saw that got you to the point of building what you recently announced, which is Latitude Go? So picking up where I left off around just that time period where I'm taking 150 Zoom calls. And one thing that I did realize as an entrepreneur and is that when you're in the, the thick of it and you're building a company, particularly in a, an emerging market or a rising market, as my friend Chris Schroeder would say, you're lonely in the process. There's a handful of things that you just don't know because you haven't been through it before. And when you can shortcut that process by forming a community of people around you that have been there, if I think back to my journey, I was fortunate to have two early investors who became incredibly close advisors. One guy by the name of Greg Waldorf, who was an EIR or a CEO in residence at Excel. He was the early CEO of eHarmony and he'd been investing in the internet since the 90s. And just like a seasoned operator slash investor, him and a guy by the name of Simon Baker, who built one of the largest prop techs in the world, REA Group in Australia, $10 billion market cap company. Those two people were early supporters of me. They just made it so much easier because they'd been through so many things and they were able to share their experiences. In Latin America, we're at an inflection point where there is starting to be amazing experience built up and a willingness to share and elevate others around you. And it wasn't until I found an amazing community of other founders one of the, the, the small communities I had, we, we called it the Breakfast Club. It was me, Tommy Seroji from Dr. Consulta, David Velas from Newbank, Daniel from Pitsy, and Kimball Thomas, who uh, sold his company Baby and became Ginda later. So the five of us would get together once a month, we would have breakfast, and it was an opportunity to have an informal board that you could share experiences, swap ideas, and, and have someone that was there in your corner helping you build. Inspiration from that enabled me to realize that a community is really important. Surround yourself by other people. Maybe they're one step ahead of you. That's something that is, is needed in Latin America. And no one had really bridged the gap between Sao Paulo or Mexico City or Bogota, Colombia. A lot of the problems are the same. People like to say, oh, it's so different. And 
particularly people love to claim Brazil as being this other place, which they speak Portuguese, but there's a lot of similarities. It's not as crazy as someone might think. So before the infrastructure pieces, we started building a community. What I realized is that community is kind of the new lean startup. If you think about it, first you build the community. And by building community, you basically listen to the community, solve problems for the community, bring people together. And when you understand what the pains are, then you can start building products or solutions that solve those problems for the community. Then you end up having a product-driven growth company because you're actually solving problems for your community of people. We listened, we started building solutions, and then we ended up having a business. And the natural evolution for the product infrastructure to help startups was my personal experience in building Viverao, where I got the sage advice from Silicon Valley that you need to have a C-Corp because it's the only thing that we'll invest in, which you know is the right advice for most companies in the US and almost all companies, but you can't say that's the answer for everybody. In reality, what we realize is that 90% of companies in Brazil today are Cayman holding companies. They're raising venture. And I had been through spinning up a handful of companies. I spun up a company called Aptuno that does rentals in Colombia and Mexico. And we went through that whole painful process where it was expensive. It took a long time. I, I saw all this manual process and it was painful. It was mind-numbing work. And to me, anything that's taking away from a founder that's obsessing about their products or obsessing about their customer, and you're focused on making sure that you have all these documents in order is a complete waste of time. So we started mapping the process and we realized that on average, it was costing about $30,000 to spin up the right structure, more if you'd already had to a different structure and you're fixing the structure. So such a waste. So we started mapping it. We started building software to automate as much as we could of that. We've now taken the process down. It's much faster today time is one of the most important things for founders. And it's about five times less expensive now that we use software and we work with the top law firms. It's the same kind of end result, just much more efficient. That becomes the starting point. Then you end up becoming the system of record for venture-backed companies. And then yes, there's a slew of other opportunities that uh, can get built on top of that, but that's the wedge and the entry point for Latitudes. That's the second chunk. And then there, there is a third little chunk that I'm happy to talk about too. So wrapping my head around how you built this business, given your prior experience with Viva Real, trying to figure out the right corporate structure, did you start Latitude with the idea in mind of actually building this company formation in a box and system of record? Or did you just build this community naturally, organically and go, oh, wait, there has to be a better way to help these companies get off the ground? Well, frankly, if, if I look at the early iterations of the ideas that I had, it's always nice when you have some retrospective rationalization and you look back and you're like, oh, I was so brilliant. I figured this out right from the, from the beginning. We were actually thinking about building infrastructure for investors first, SPVs, other things like that. But I actually always knew that this particular problem would be solved and I wanted to solve it. I remember floating it to other investors in the early days and everyone was like, I don't really get it. How is that a venture-backed company? Doesn't sound that interesting. But I, but I never really listened to anybody because I was like, this is a problem that annoys me. In fact, there's early iterations, early conversations, I think predating COVID where I'm talking to Gunderson, I'm talking to Carta, I'm talking to others. I, I talked to Stripe. I called Stripe Atlas and spoke to them about the product. Maybe we can do it in, in partnership with them. In the beginning, what, what I thought about is another area. I'd been doing a lot of angel investing. You mentioned 80 angel investments. Today, when you combine it with the fund, it's more like 150 investments. I didn't know if I was going to become a tech company or a fund or a hybrid of the two. 
I dabbled in the investing and then I was like, yeah, I think I'm a better entrepreneur than investor. So I decided to make that the full time. But the third rung of what we have is we do have a fund because I think the big problems to solve are company formation. But if you think about the three main problems, it's three legs to a stool. It's distribution. And the more companies you have in your network and your platform, they can cross sell kind of like the YC effect. The second one is talent. And we have some ambitions on our community and programs to scale up the access to talent. And then the third one uh, is capital. That brings it full circle and why we have a fund also. You mentioned the capital piece, and you also mentioned that you wanted to initially start by serving investors, given the opportunity that you see in Latin America for investors to access a great and exciting market, a rising market, as your friend says. Why did you decide to start with the company side before infrastructure for investors? Because that's also a big need in Latin America too. And if you make that simplified for investors, that also helps company formation. That also helps the capital flows into the space. I think it's just a DNA question. I'm a founder. I love founders. I want to help founders. I'm all about founders. It's authentic. I can't help but give advice that's super founder centric because my true you know, essence as a founder. I think that's the, the first answer. And then second, investors just want access to great founders. So if you focus on founders, you end up building a bridge to access. It's just like a, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. If you serve the investors first, you're not building as much value for the ecosystem. And so I think that we will eventually build some investor-centric products. Angel has started with investors and they've done incredibly well. And so I don't think it'd be a wrong decision, but it feels more natural to me. And Carta started with companies and now they have investors. And we were investors in Carta early on. And this has similar feels to what you're building for the region in the context of Carta. And you may very well be different. And I think you're doing a bunch of different things than them. But to that point, why does the region need a tropicalized solution? We've seen this happen over and over again, but why do you think this product should exist in the way you're building it versus Carta coming into LATAM? They have some companies who use Carta in the region, but Carta is not the dominant player in the region, and there's probably reasons why. The big competitors excel for them. If we dip our toes into the cap table stuff, I'm very close with the folks at Carta. I have some LPs in my fund from Carta. We're not building a Carta-focused business, but we're in a position to potentially long-term dabble with the cap table stuff, given that we're in the company formation. There's a handful of other ancillary businesses that we will inevitably launch. If we can nail the company formation, land and expand in Brazil really effectively, and then the rest of the region, I think that's the starting point. But to answer your question more succinctly about the tropicalization versus the local needs. We have seen a handful of waves of Latin America. The vintage that I was part of was definitely copy and paste the model. Zillow for Brazil. And that, that's still a strategy that works. If anything, it's a great way to seduce the international investors because the mental leap is not necessary. I think that the best investors are starting to understand that there is actually an incredible opportunity and I'll take an example for myself where I started a, a prop tech company. We were kind of the Zillow of Brazil, and it was more of a classifieds play. The reality is that I was a little too tunnel vision. We obviously tropicalized some aspects of it. There's no MLS, so there's other things that we had to do. But I think I got too narrow in my thinking, and I, I saw a Quinto Andar pop up. I saw a Loft pop up and many others. I actually invested in a few of the other prop techs like Quinto and La House and others, mainly because I knew they were servicing the value prop a little differently and better than us. We definitely left the door open just by importing an idea and even making minor adjustments. 
any good business is solving a really specific problem. Build something that customers want. We all know the phrase. It's that that's going to enable you to really unlock the real value. It's good to find an idea, breathe new energy into it, as James Courier would say. I think that's something that he's talked about. But going a step further is actually really understanding the, the intricacies of the market and the differences in the market, because then you can really exploit opportunities and build something that's 10x better. To that point, what advice would you give to international investors so that they can truly understand some of those unique intricacies that a market may have, whether it's just the entire region or even there may be differences between Brazil or Colombia, Argentina, Mexico. How should people think about that and really innately understand these opportunities? I think that it takes a little bit of time. I don't think that it's something that's so obvious. The first thing I would do would be build a strong network of angel investors and other operators. You can shortcut some of your lessons by picking off some of the smartest people. I've seen a bunch of funds start their scout programs and things like that. Those are all smart ideas that will accelerate your understanding. If you take a look at some of the, I won't name any names, but we can fill in the blank on big global investors. I think that they've start with like less sharper elbows. I was talking to Aaron on my podcast, the Latitude podcast, and I was like, hey, how do you feel about X fund starting to really invest in the region? And the position of most global funds is we're friendly. And I think they are and they will be. But I think at the end of the day, if there's a big pot of gold, you're not really shouting from the rooftops usually, unless part of your strategy is that you see it as a team sport and you're not maybe going full all in yet, which is a good way to start. And it usually starts that way. And then when you start getting smarter, I will name a few names. QED started. They're now leading rounds. When Sequoia wrote that long article, they made a gesture to these local funds. I don't know. My guess is they probably want to crush everyone, right? Like it's Sequoia. Like you think they're going to be a super nice guy? This is no judgment. I have no inside information about any of these funds. I'm just thinking from a perspective of competition and winning deals, an extension of the U.S. market. No one's trying to bring you into their best deals if you've got a pool of capital that you're trying to also deploy. So for those who don't know, Hernan is one of the founders of Kazek, one of the biggest and, and most successful regional funds, early investor Nubank, Kito Andar, a number of others. On that point, though, what we've seen with the likes of Kazek, Monashi's QED raising dedicated funds and now larger funds in the region, do you think... The regionally focused winners will become the big dominant funds and just raise larger and larger funds like the Sequoia of the region rather than the international investor, unless they maybe put boots on the ground, actually kind of win deals. And also it's worth saying that com competition is probably good for the region too. It creates more capital flowing in, larger funding rounds, et cetera. I think that the quality of the investors has just dramatically improved over the last five to 10 years. And to your point, that's because there's more you know, competition, there's more levels of sophistication that didn't exist before. I think all the funds you mentioned are going to do extremely well and get bigger and more successful over time. I was talking to a friend, Winter Mead, who wrote a book, How to Raise a Venture Capital Fund. And I had him on my podcast. And I remember we discussed, if you look at the cycle time of the top funds, it's very hard to stay on top for a long time. I do think that all the firms you mentioned that are local have a pretty incredible competitive advantage. You develop some network effects when you're in a handful of deals. 
But we can both name a handful of uh, Sand Hill Road firms that were, you know, seen as the top dog and weren't going to be knocked off anytime soon. Now they probably have lost their, a little bit of their luster. I think that that's a natural thing. Both of those firms that you'd mentioned, which Kazek and Monarchies led my Series A, right? They co-led it. I think I was one of the only deals where I got them to invest together and try to box them out from anyone else. They may occasionally do that still. I think it's a good strategy. There's also some other great firms, Valord and Canary and Maya, and, and there's just way more high caliber firms, not just in Brazil, but in Latin America today. But I think that they will continue to do extremely well. I do think that they benefit from being in a couple of really big winners. And they also benefit from having boots on the ground, frankly, that I think can make uh, quite a difference. Yeah, it's an interesting point to think about as this market develops at mid to later stages, there becomes an opportunity to really help companies at early stages. And we've seen many great companies, not all, but many go to Y Combinator in part because they want access to an international network. I think YC also does a great job helping with fundraising. As you mentioned, community and network is such a big part of initial customer traction, cross-selling, things like that. When you think about building latitude, how do you think about creating that first port of call, early stage community? So as the market grows and the likes of Kazek Monashis will have to invest at slightly later stages because they're bigger funds, there's a gap to fill where you're playing. Oh, 100%. I think that we're not a venture fund first, but it would be irresponsible for us not to deploy some capital in the companies that we see in our community because, and then really it's just a virtuous cycle as well. We've already seen a couple iterations of early stage founders that have then scaled up really quickly. Now they're investors in the holding company of Latitude and investors in the fund. I think that we're at the very early days of the ecosystem evolving. Think about like 2005 in the Valley. That was a time where there was some companies, people started reinvesting a little bit. The concept of a super angel was, you know, starting to become a reality. We're still very early. Given that we're not a fund exclusively, it enables me to partner with many funds. I believe investing is a team sport at the pre-seed stage. And given that our focus is expanding the community, I didn't highlight this, but we have these equity-free programs. It's basically the place for uh, an entrepreneur to start their journey. So let's say they're an executive at a top tech company in the region and they want to start a company. There's no real great place to go and start. We want to become the place where you go, you validate ideas with the community, you tap into a network, you, you raise some capital. We're going to help with a handful of other friction points that exist. We have thousands of people that apply and we have a pretty strict admissions process. So that's a, a great way for us to provide signal to those U.S. investors that global investors, if you're looking for, you know, into LATAM, which if you're listening to this, where it's still very early and there's a ton of great companies being built. I've seen VCs that actually scrape LinkedIn and see who's gone through Latitude. And then they have their teams reaching out to do more proactive screening of opportunities. That's something that I'm proud of. And it's also something that the region, you know, really needed because up until that point, signal and noise was a pretty heavy ratio of noise. You're hitting on, I think, two really interesting pieces when it comes to community building within the LATAM startup ecosystem. So one is it's 
training this next wave of founders. You were part of that first wave. Now we have this next wave. What's interesting about this next wave is like you, you mentioned some of them, like the Daniels from Bitso, the, the Sebastians from Rappi, the Davids from Newbank and Christina's from Newbank, et cetera. They're now investing in a lot of other companies in the region. And it feels like LATAM actually popularized this idea of the founder community round in a sense of like on TechCrunch, the 15 founders who invest into another LATAM startup are mentioned. And it shows that people are supporting the region. There's this next set of alumni who are building businesses that the founders are backing. What do you think about that? And is, what, what does that mean to you when you think about the growth of the LATAM startup ecosystem? I think it's fundamental and it's a key point to, because one thing is just putting a little bit of money in, but also helping is another thing. Similar to how I benefited from those two early angel investors, it's a fulfilling thing to be able to mentor and advise and connect and support other entrepreneurs. I also think that it's an incredibly advantageous place to play if you're a successful founder because you're, you want to stay sharp. And when you're investing in the next generation of companies, you learn a ton while you're there. And so I think it's just a natural evolution. And frankly, if you're a Series B founder, the probability that you have incredibly good deal flow is very high. We started a program. So we have the Founder Fellowship, which is essentially two stages of founders. We have the Explore program, which is ideation very early, figuring it out. Then we have the Build program, which is seed onto Series A. And we're providing kind of support system and, and decoupling capital from advice and network and, and building that place to go. And on the other side, the investor side, we've since... Uh, you know, added a fellowship for angel investors. Hugh Strange from Newbank, a guy led product very early, has learned an amazing amount of being a part of that journey. He's got some liquidity. He can invest in the next companies, then he can mentor them on products. There's just so many different examples of that. And so we want to help those investors. We want to facilitate those investors that are founders to, to reinvest back into the ecosystem. In fact, I think that I tweeted maybe a year ago that the future of LATAM will be powered by one to 10K checks. And that's just coming to fruition today. Great lead in to the next point, which is you raised a community round on stonks. How do you think about enabling what you just said to happen, the one to 10K checks? So even before I knew what I was going to build, I created a spreadsheet. I made a list of all these great entrepreneurs and I'm like, I'm going to get like 200 people to invest in this round. And it was a long time ago. And this is before I even knew about stonks. The way I found out about Stonks is I was pitching Andreessen at their office and I told them that I wanted to do that. And then they were like, oh, I think I had heard of Stonks or seen one of their memes. So they made the introduction there. When I look at the high value checks in the early days of Viva, I actually did this and credit where credit is due. Greg Waldorf, who was a mentor for me, he brought in Mickey Malka. He brought in Wences Casares. He brought in Julio Vasconcelos. The focus on bringing those early angels are one, signal, two, access to downstream capital, three, experience and, and knowledge of, in terms of scaling a startup. So that comes with a lot of value. And four, if you can find someone with some vertical knowledge in your sector, right? And so when I constructed my round at, at, at VivaRail back in the day, I had 20, 30 angels involved. So I actually already did this. And the bang for your buck that you got from like a 50K check or a 25K check from a super seasoned angel. And at the time, there was no local investors. So those 15, 20 people that invested, it was like Gordon Rubenstein from the States and like a handful of others that had been on the journey of either an investor or, or an entrepreneur. So 
that was a, a very obvious next step for me. I think that it's a really smart thing to do for early stage founders. You can either do it two ways. You can start with that and then you can raise institutional or you find a really good institutional investor and you carve off a party around. Is that part of what you want to build at Latitude when you talk about building infrastructure for companies, creating the way for them to do exactly what you're just saying, but in a more systematic, organized way? I think that could be one of the products that we build over time. If I were to you know, be candid about the roadmap, it's probably not an immediate thing that we'll build. I think that we may do it more on an informal basis and maybe we can you know, leverage. Angelus does a hell of a job with our roll-up vehicle. Before our call, I checked from the stonks. We're finalizing the stonks and excited to have you on board and many others on board. It's cool to see literally in the last couple of days, we had 50, 60, 70, 100 people all of a sudden subscribe to the round. And so what that is, it's a little Web 3-like, right? It's You get your community to invest, you share ownership. It's kind of like a Web 2.5 or something. It's right in the middle on its way to Web 3. I think that there's a handful of w- ways that we can do that without necessarily building all of the infrastructure, but maybe piecing together existing infrastructure, maybe building some of it. But we would love to facilitate um, and make it easier for founders to raise capital from great investors. And we want to partner with Broadhaven and others to make that a reality. On that point, you look at the evolution of markets in various places and and the fintech revolutions that ensued. In the US, it was lending, then digital banking, then retail brokerage, now alts. I think we're kind of a few years behind in LATAM, right? Because you need to just provide core banking services first. So like the new banks, the CLARs, et cetera, what the Pomelos are doing now with financial infrastructure, enabling core banking services, the evolution there. Then you get into things like investing, the Flinks and Easy Invest of the world are building that. Then there will be alts. Where do you think we are in that arc of innovation and people being ready in the region to invest into everything from alts to NFTs to maybe they participate in Latitude, maybe they participate in a DAO that you create. Who knows what it is, but where are we in that evolution so that people are investing some of their disposable income in LATAM? Because obviously the market's a little bit different than it is in the US. There's no doubt in my mind that all the things you'd mentioned are in store for LATAM. I think it is pretty early. But remember, Latin America is a quick study on crypto in general. I like to go back to you know my early days. If only I'd listened to Wences Casares when he was talking about Bitcoin back in the day. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't get it. He, he understood it because he's from, he's from Argentina. And I should have known better because when I lived in Argentina, it was one to one, the peso to the dollar. Now it's like 150 to one. So If there's anyone that understands it, it's people that have gone through, whether you're in Venezuela, you're in Argentina. And so I think that a lot of innovation comes out of particularly Argentina, Uruguay, those two markets, Brazil. There's a lot of innovation that's happening. You look at Daniel from Bitso. There's a few creators and builders that are really moving that forward. Just to maybe not make any kind of predictions on the future, but I've been assessing whether we tr- you transform the Latitude community aspects and the programs into a DAO. To me, it's kind of a natural fit. If you were to break it down, three things that we're building. One, community, that's programs and community, which is kind of like the Stanford for the internet of entrepreneurship. That's the way I look at that portion of our business. The tech infrastructure that's solving and reducing friction for early stage founders and the capital stack. On the first piece, I think that could be owned by the community. And there's no reason why we shouldn't do that 
most of these things, like a DAO, there's a vision that we have. I think that there's a, a bit of a misunderstanding about like how DAOs work. You don't just all of a sudden hand every, the keys over to everybody. That's like a public company problem for an early stage startup, right? Where it's who's driving the, the decision making here. But I think over the long term, that is a natural evolution for what we're building with community. We've been thinking about it and it's something that we may look at. So in the midterm, we may evolve into that. But I think that where we are in the cycle is it's, it's listen, it's relatively early ov- overall. I-, I know there's a lot of people that are deep in this and they think they're late to the, the party. Uh, the party is really just beginning. Latin America, I would say uh, from a global scale, I would say it's right where it should be. It's, it's pretty well caught up. There's a lot of innovative projects. Whenever you have a lot of uncertainty around banking systems and other things, you tend to have more innovation. And so I think that we'll see more innovation actually come from Latin America than other places, because when things don't work well, you naturally gravitate towards alternative solutions. On that point, do you think we'll see leapfrogging, particularly with regards to crypto, that people will pick up crypto native solutions faster because, to your point, whether there's mistrust in government, whether there's a mistrust in local currencies, that people will start to just pick up crypto. And and as a result, we may see adoption happen and then innovation with regard to company building or protocol building happen faster. I, I think that will happen. And I think it's happening a bit whether it's a mainstream thing right now, it's probably not, but I think there could be faster adoption. And, and I think it's because going back to my statement that I made, when you understand and you experience the uncertainty of a market and you've been killed by the traditional system, there's a great book, Speed of Trust, right? By Stephen McCovey. And the reality is that there's low trust in Latin America. One, it makes it a little harder sometimes to do business, but two, if you can provide an amazing, seamless service, Nubank built trust. And, and then they built incredible speed. And because they were able to win the confianza, as you say in Spanish, the belief and the trust of the company. And so I think that can be an accelerant. And I think crypto is pretty ripe in Latin America. I don't know the numbers in terms of users, minted NFTs or anything like that, but I would guess that it's higher than other places in the world. So on that point, I think it's really interesting to think about crypto adoption, and where you are in the market building latitude. You could totally build a Web2 solution and it would be important, it would be used, and it would work. We're also living in a time where people are transitioning to Web3, and you mentioned Web2.5, kind of this middle ground between the two. How do you think about building a company into current time period where Web3 is starting to become something that gets adopted, and yet you still, to some extent, live in a Web2 world. How do you balance those two things? That's a good question. I, I think that you have to, maybe to quote Andy Grove, survival belongs to the paranoid. I don't know that's a paraphrased quote, but you've got to be paranoid about what that looks like. I think that the lesson for me is I built a good business. We sold it for a fair amount of money. It was, by most measures, it was successful. But I think that it would have been bigger if we had stayed a little more uncomfortable and and paranoid about what we were building. So I think that's something that you have to remind yourself. And I think the moment when you think you've got it figured out is usually with the, the, the cosmos and the universe kind of like slams you down to earth and says, actually, you, you missed this completely. To take a page out of Amazon's book, you've got to be willing to disrupt yourself. But timing is also one of the, the biggest factors in startup success. If you're too early, one of my good friends, Alex Torrenegra, he had an Airbnb type business before Airbnb. Timing didn't work. Maybe there's other variables why it didn't work. But I, we can all think of examples of 
the, the companies that existed before the company came and just like swallowed up the entire market. And so I think it's a balancing act of understanding where the market is and what the solution is, while at the same time, make sure you don't have a, a blind eye to what the potential of the market could be. What makes you believe that you are catching the crest of the wave at the right time in Latin America, that right now is the right time to be building Latitude and Latitude Go? First of all, none of it matters if you're thinking about a 10-year horizon. No one knows. The future is uncertain. I can get into some more talking points on why Latin America is super exciting right now, but I don't even really care because I'm building something that's 10 to 20 years down the road. And it's a luxury that I'm sitting in a comfortable chair where I'm like, okay, I can think long-term. And when you're thinking long-term, you play a different game than everyone else. I remember thinking quarters and years. And now when you think in decades, it changes how you, you think about things. Of course, with the urgency of delivering, you've always got your CEO, your chairman, and your founder hat. Founder culture, obsessed about that. CEO, quarterly results, and then chairman, like where are we going in the next decade? But I would say, if you look at the inflection point that we're in right now, It's the confluence of talent that has been born out of all these successful companies. It's capital. Compared to two, three years ago, the amount of capital just alone, just looking at that, that is clearly an inflection point. This was an underinvested region. It was. You could argue that it's still underinvested because of the size of the market, the amount of infrastructure that still needs to be built. I would like to say that I had this vision of timing But frankly, it worked out for me and I I happened to be available and without a job in in 2020. And I was like, let's go start something. Hey, sometimes not having a plan presents the plan itself, right? That's right. That's right. That's great. So I always end this podcast by asking guests what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is. What's yours? It's funny. I don't know if this is alternative. I got to think about it. I have to invert the question because literally I'm all alternative. I get founders reaching out to me with interesting business ideas. And I'm like, yeah, I don't invest in non-LATAM businesses. So by definition, my DNA is alternative. I would have to answer the question in reverse and say that I've been really enjoying investing in these Airbnbs. And then just cash flowing them. I think that somebody will seize this on an institutional level if they haven't already. There's a handful of companies that exist, probably you know them, but I'm looking at the cash flows on some of these and the IRR is pretty pretty impressive. Well, that's an interesting point. And that actually is an interesting piece or corner of the alternatives world. When you think about fractionalization as a theme, we've seen it in collectibles. You're doing this in the real estate space. You're on the board of Kokomo and you're an investor there that's fractionalizing vacation homes effectively for LATAM or US investors. You mentioned Aptuno. What makes you so excited about that market? With the the case of Kokomo, I think everybody dreams of having a second home. It's just a normal thing. You're like, okay, I didn't have a lot of money 10 years ago or enough to buy a second home. I always dreamed of the trifecta of like Lake Tahoe, Hawaii, and Mexico. That's the trifecta for me. Before this call, I'd mentioned I live up in Sonoma County. I live in the wine country. And I'm just picking up and I'm going to live in Mexico for a year. So I think the fluidity of living has changed. I was reminiscing last week with a friend of mine who interviewed me for his podcast about remote work. I came from a a company that was anti-remote work. I had an investor that told me I literally had to be in Brazil 48 weeks of the year as part of the investment because they wanted me committed. And today, that that just seems so ridiculous. 
I, I think that the evolution of where people live and work and the fractional ownership piece has enabled the asset class to change. And it's the largest asset class in the world. It's pretty low NPS across the board, not a lot of innovation in prop tech and in real estate. So given that I came from the real estate background, oftentimes this is what happens. Sometimes the successful founders that go through in a sector, they usually don't like the sector afterwards because they know all the problems and everything that can go wrong. I've somehow managed to make about 13 or 14 prop tech investments, Aptuna and Kokomo being two that I'm excited about. I just got back from my Kokomo in Sayulita. And let me tell you, not having to fix the, the pump that broke and having someone pick me up at the airport and then having chilaquiles in the morning made for me, pretty damn good life. And the, the cost of ownership is much more effective than sinking $3 million into a, a vacation property on the beach in Mexico. You think that's a secular trend where people may not want to either own things in the same way that they have in the past, but still have some form of ownership or investment into something where they can feel like a part of it, but not necessarily be responsible for everything that goes with it, particularly when it comes to something like real estate? A hundred percent. And after having gone through the experience as a customer of our own product, my wife and I are just like, all right, there's no way we're doing it a different way, right? This is just a no brainer. And so yeah, I think that's something that is a clear trend. And the way you could think about it from the standpoint that we talked about, I'm taking a little vacation this summer and I'm going to go to Europe. If you can swap your time and, and get a place in Sicily or in Greece or something, that's insane. The idea of having a home and the experience, like in, in the case of Kokomo, we recently had a new customer staying at one of the places that I co-own with Carlos uh, Garcia from Kavak, and a, another customer came in. And it was so cool because when the customer got there, the team had taken pictures off of their social media and put them in frames. So they walked into their vacation home on the beach. There's pictures of their kids on the wall. That's just crazy. You didn't have to do anything. You just show up and it's like all of a sudden you have your house. So I think that this is definitely an asset class transformation where all that stuff is possible now. And COVID was an accelerant of it. There's no question. That's fascinating. You're hitting on so many interesting themes here. We've talked about ownership. That's a recurring theme. And it's in real estate. It's also in what you're building. And you're enabling the region to do that. I'm sure we could continue to go on for hours. But let's do that for part two about why LATAM is so exciting. But Brian, thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Congrats on everything you've done, what you're doing for such an important region. Great to have you on. Uh, Thanks, man. It's a pleasure. And I hope that we can do a lot more together. And if any of the listeners are interested in, in this you know, region of the world, hit me up. I'm happy to be a resource. I have a, a fund also. It's 501c, so I get to say it out loud. But if you go to fund.latitude, that's latitude without an e.com, if you want to you know, drop a small check in the fund, we still have a couple spots left, I think, in our current rolling fund. And then we'll be you know, launching a, a, a more institutional fund in the future. So could be a good way just to buy a basket of Lat Am if you're interested. Bring the community in. Come on in. Water's warm. <laughs> love it. Love it, Brian. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going.